All right. Well, good morning. As if, right? <clears throat> um, pretty crazy. Have you guys ever been in one of those orientations um, for a job or, or, or basically you're volunteering for something and they're going through all these details and all those details mean something, but none of those details at that moment happen to relate to you at all. And so you're just there physically, but your mind is on another channel, right? You're sitting there, your brain's on another channel and you're processing like, how in the world did somebody make it big with a song like Mbop, right? And how did it become that the, the song of the year for MTV Music Awards in 1997. How in the world did that take place? And then all of a sudden, they're talking about information that does relate to you, but you've already been checked out. Well, well here's the thing. Hopefully, today will not be like that orientation, okay? Way to introduce it, man. You're like, mbop, right? Let me Google that. Um, now, nah, here's the deal. For some of you in this room, um, you're going to hear us, we're going to be talking about marriage in the text, and you're going to think, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not married. I'm single. Um, I want you to know today that you are part of this story, and we're going to see it in, in a few moments. And so don't feel like just because we're talking about marriage, it doesn't connect to you. It does. You are vital to this. You need to know that as these joy kids are part of our church, you're part of our church. And honestly, us that are married, we need single people to be praying for us, encouraging us, walking alongside of us, reminding us. And you need us to remind you that you are no less than just because you're not married. And so we want you to know that we're in this together. We're part of this story, walking hand in hand for the glory of his name. We do this together. So I want to make sure that is clear. Um, so a couple things. My invitation today is to see this as an opportunity to be equipped for the sake of those that you know. There may be marriages in this room that need help, and there may be marriages outside this room that maybe you're aware of that need help. And what we're going to do today is walk through some of these things in, in the text and really lean and flesh them out. And again, we're just going through 1 Peter. If you haven't been with us, that's what we're doing. We're just going through the text, and this is hap happens to be where we're at next. And so to refresh those of you who haven't been here, and maybe those that have and had a lot happen in this past week, um, Peter is writing to those that are following Jesus in a pagan culture in what's known as modern-day Turkey. And these people in this pagan culture are opposed to the things of God, and he gives them a reminder of the importance of their mission as ambassadors for Christ. Like, they have intent in, in their existence. And so to remind them, one of the things that he does in chapter 2, Peter says this, he says, but you are a chosen race. You may be marginalized by culture and society, but here in Christ, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, which means you stand between God and the culture that you exist in. You're a holy nation. You've been set apart and you are a people for his own possession. And here is why you exist. He says that you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like you have reason. You exist on purpose. And he keeps this um, view in, in, in front of them, right, by proclaiming these excellencies to those around them. And then he says it this way a couple verses later in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as those that are not in your home, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And for them, this was natural. This was real. Being in a pagan culture, all those things are at their door every day. And if you have access to a phone or a TV or just you have your eyes open, it is in front of you as well. 
Then he says to them, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Here it's more of a a picture of unbelievers, not necessarily a people group, but just those that don't know the Lord. He says, keep your conduct among them honorable. So that, here's the the, the point, the reason why, is so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds, they may see that you're responding in an uncommon way, that the good deeds that you do, and glorify God on the day of visitation, which means you are so enamored with, transformed by the work of God's grace and his spirit in and through you that you're modeling this before them in such a way that they themselves want to believe as well. That's how important our actions are. And then he transitions. He says, be subject Verse 13, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So notice this, that the detail is being subject, which means subordinate to, on purpose, like you're willingly doing this, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And that, that phrase, human institution, really serves as like concentric circles because what he's going to do is he's going to break that down in, in circles. The first circle is going to be as citizens under a government. So that one, you're going to be subject under the government for the Lord's sake. The other one we talked about last week in slavery. In our context, it's just that of the picture of being an employee. So we're all subordinates to someone. And then today, very, very uniquely, this smaller circle is that of wives and husbands. Peter gives the example of their calling. He says, in light of this calling that you've been called, like this is to what you've been called. And here's why. Notice in chapter 2, verse 21, which we dealt with last week, Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, here's why, so that you might follow in his footsteps. And so as citizens of this country, as employees of a job, as wives or husbands, here's the responsibility, is so that you might follow in his steps. What does it look like? Well, Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd an overseer of your souls. And so he does this incredible job of merging together the, the picture of the suffering servant from Isaiah 52 and 53 and letting you know how Christ accomplished that as an example for us who would be called to live out this walk in a pagan culture. And so it's the recognition of the person who compels us to submit in order to live lives of godly obedience. Now we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then he uses the word to start it off, likewise. So in the same manner as you responded as slaves, the same manner in which you responded as citizens, respond this way as wives. So wives, and and by the way, these traits that you're about to see relate to husbands as well. These traits also relate to those who are single, just basic traits of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, So just bear in mind. So there's some great takeaways here. So notice this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So a couple things. So this is speaking to women. 
in this culture who have followed Jesus. They used to be pagan, but somehow or another they were, you know, at a well or at the marketplace and they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they trusted Jesus and they submitted their lives to him, but their husband is still living as a pagan. And so this is instructions to them. Even if some do not obey the word, it says, they may be one. They may be basically turn their lives over to God without a word by the conduct of their wives. And so by the way their wives are transformed by the work of the gospel, very similar to what we just talked about a moment ago, they're like criticizing you for being evildoers, but they see the way you respond, and they want God for themselves. So that's the heart. He says, by the word of the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, some of you, y'all can read those things and be like, I'm good there. We could just put a little, you know, put a little bookmark there, you know, period, exclamation mark, however you want to do it to end it, the end. But it doesn't stop there. And we're going to try to explain this fun part next. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, quiet, gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And this is where husbands will have this tendency to just, it's, it's a weird move, but all of a sudden it's like a reaction to hearing this, and an elbow just softly caresses the, the shoulder of their wife. I don't know if it was the adorning part, but maybe the um, gentle and quiet spirit. We're going to explain in a moment. Just saying. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. This is the way they did it, he says. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So, let's work on teasing this out, right? Finding your identity. This is key for all of us. Um, Husband, wife, single, married, doesn't matter, right? Finding your identity in who you are in Christ, not finding it in external attraction or the attention that you get from someone else or your spouse. Like knowing who you are in Christ utmost. So this picture of fear that they're, they're fleeing from happens by hoping in God. So how does she win him based on this text? The first thing is without word. Without a word, she wins him. So let me just explain without a word what it means, okay? And this is where, again, this goes both for husbands and for wives. Both of you have this problem, and that's without nagging or pressuring. I know none of the women in this church are naggers. I know none of the men in this this church are, are naggers or complainers. Not any of you are like that. But these are people that we've heard of. These are friends of ours, okay? Totally friends of ours. That, that nag and complain and, and want to bring up all the faults. And you're like, I know you did your best on that, that recipe from Pinterest, but like, let's just say, let's be honest, right? No, without nagging or complaining. And then, then, then next it says, win him by respectful and pure conduct. Like, in other words, this picture of respect here is one of value. It's one of valuing who they are as an image bearer. Their personhood, pure conduct, which means conduct without like ill intent on the backside. I'm doing this good here, but I got something sneaky I'm going to ask for later. 
And this, this phrase here, not external adorning, the, the purpose here is not, that's not the focus. So don't sit there and say, I'm going to lure my husband in and point him to Jesus because my hair looks great, my makeup looks great, and boy, do I smell good. That's not the point. The, the focus more so is on the contrast between the external and the internal saying the external is not the way that you model this transformation of what God has done in your life. It's through the internal person of what God has done in transforming your wretched heart so that your husband can see that this is where hope lies. It's not in how good looking your wife is, but it's on what God has done and given her value. So that's important to see, this internal beauty. An example of this we see in the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, verse 30, it says, charm is deceitful. And beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And, and, hey, charm happens from dudes, too. Like, guys try to be charming and real cool and calm and all this other stuff. It's called the dating phase, and then you get married, and all of a sudden that Prince Charming turned into the toad. It happens in reverse. Um, and, and that's real stuff, right? It's deceitful, and beauty is in vain. But, like, the person who fears the Lord is to be praised. But there's this picture that Peter is alluding to here, this internal adorning is the hidden person of the heart. And this is only something that God can do. This isn't human manufactured. In Proverbs 31, verse 25, it says, strength and dignity are her clothing. Like those characteristics. And then the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, this, this thing that continues on past the, her age, right? We see this in Proverbs 31, verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And here's the thing. You want to know how wisdom is acquired? It doesn't happen at age 21. It's over time. The beauty of this woman grows as she grows. And the wisdom that she brings forth from these lessons of life and begins to apply them. And I'm telling you, some of the greatest women that God has used to be part of my discipleship as a follower of Christ are some of the women who didn't, like, weren't like broadcasters of their position and place in the church. These are the women that have been faithful, steady, showing ideas and giving wisdom in just small ways. And this is an example of that kind of woman. And these things, it says, are precious in the sight of God. And then it talks about the holy women. This is what characterizes them. Is that they hope in God. That's, that means they're, they're anchoring their lives, their existence on who he is. Not in some external factor. Not in something that some politician brings or some product brings or any of those things. It's only in God. And they are holy, which means they belong to God. They've been set apart for God. And they are fearless, which means they are not threatened by the world's value system. Which, by the way, is awesome. Can you imagine if we actually were not threatened by the world's value systems? By how we looked in a particular picture that we had to filter it some way, to shape it or manufacture it so we were presented as something different than we actually are? And these holy women, they do good personally, and they also promote others that do good. 
And there's this picture of submission, and Peter does this work of really talking about Sarah's submission back in Genesis. And this is in Genesis 18, 9 through 12. She's in the tent next door, and she overhears God telling Abraham that they were going to be parents. Detail, she was 89, he was 99. So she's listening, and she's like, that's hilarious. And she busts out laughing. That's why the name Isaac means laughter. So she hears this and she's like, wait a minute. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, this is where Peter's quoting, calling him Lord from like, like Abraham's like, he's about to hit a century. Like, bro, like that's crazy. And here's the tie-in. The crazy thing about Sarah is if we were at a dance, Sarah was not the wallflower. She was leading the Cupid shuffle, okay? Sarah was out on the floor. She was not a quiet person, and she was not weak. We see several times where, I mean, even the situation with Hagar, the girl didn't play. She was real. But there's this picture where, where Peter's drawing her submission into view. And so the thing I want you to see is that submission does not mean that you're going to be some wallflower, like some, some tapestry. No, no, you're part of the story. You make things happen. You are valuable. And so there's intent there. So I want you to hear that. Here is what submission is not. I want to make sure this is clear. It is not agreeing with the husband on all important matters, especially in this case, in context, we've got a, a husband that's an unbeliever. So the, the husband and the wife are not going to agree on who God is and what he does to change and transform lives. Submission is not leaving the brain at the altar, even though many of you husbands wish they did. If we're honest, fellas, our wives are smarter than us, but you won't own that. That's on you, Okay. <laughs> I'll say it. She's right there. I could say it with confidence. Submission is not avoiding the effort to change her husband. I mean, if you really love them and you see that they need the Lord, you're going to do whatever it takes. It's not putting um, the will of the husband before the will of Christ. It's not putting, submission is not putting up with abuse. It is not getting all her spiritual strength through or from the husband because they understand that God is the direct source of her strength, right? She's going to get this from the word, from community. And submission is not acting in fear. In fact, it's God-dependent meekness that this woman lives in. Paul writes about this briefly in Colossians 3. He says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is. Notice this, as is fitting to the Lord. Like her submission doesn't have her husband in view. It has the Lord in view. And then husbands, notice this, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In, similar, in a similar way, Peter addresses it like this. In 1 Peter 3, verse 7, it says, likewise, husbands. Notice that likewise, like it was with wives, in the same way. This is the concentric circle getting smaller. So you're going to submit, okay, for the Lord's sake in these ways. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. I want to pause there. That, that word in the language there really is, is kind of, um, we got kids in the room, so I'm going to be super careful here. It's referring to physical intimacy. 
ultimate oneness and intimacy. So live with your wives in an understanding way, which means you are so intimately attuned to who she is that you know what would hurt her and what would help her. You're so attuned to who she is and her rhythms of life and what makes her happy and what doesn't that you, you know the things that discourage her, you know the things that encourage her, the things that build her up and the things that tear her, her down. And it says, in light of that, living with your wives in an understanding way, knowing her truthfully, in light of that, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, which means you are looking for ways to promote her, to build her, to, to really loft her up. And so you do that through ways of protection, provision, and leadership initiative, okay? So you look for ways to, to highlight who she is, to talk good about her, not to go sit there at the bar like downplaying my old lady this. No, that's not a guy who follows Jesus. And it says weaker vessel there. That's an idea of both of them have physical bodies. And it's just in general, a man is stronger than a wife. Unless you're like me and you've seen your wife deliver six kids and you know there is not a chance. And yeah, that you're stronger than your wife because that woman is heroic. Okay. So that's the picture in play there. It says this. This is the distinction between the first um, calling for wives to an unbelieving husband. Here's where it's different. It says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. That means that this is speaking to a husband who has a believing wife. And it says, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So you're going to live in an understanding way, showing honor to her, right? Because she's an heir with you of this grace that both of you get to breathe in the grace of God. And here's the reason why you do this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, here's what I want you to understand. This is where he leaves speaking specifically to husbands and actually includes both the wife and the husband in this command. Because the word your there is plural, which means to keep from your, your prayers as a husband and wife from being hindered. Now, what would hinder it? I don't know if you've had those moments where you've had that knockdown drag out because you probably complained a little bit too much about that Pinterest recipe. And then it starts there, and then somehow or another, nobody's got a good memory until you're in an argument. <laughs> and then everybody remembers everything you ever did, right? Even before you knew each other, these are things your, your grandparents did, and I just want to bring them up. It's your fault. Like those things... And then after you're done, hey, we should pray together. Let's do this. There's no way. There's no way that we're going to sink in together because in that moment, if we're honest, we're sinning. And we're not going to approach the throne of grace, even though we can do it in confidence because of the blood of Jesus. But there are some things that need to be reconciled. In fact, God's word said, Jesus says, right? He's like, look, if you've got something against someone else or somebody's got something against you, don't, don't come to me. Go to that person first, reconcile, and then let's get it right. So there's importance here in this. And so this idea of hindering, what happens is sin obstructs our relationship with God. It also obstructs our unity in prayer. Whereas you're thinking one thing, your spouse is thinking the other thing, and, and it's not walking together. And the other thing is, is both pragmatic and just spiritual. It's real, right? Broken relationships makes it hard 
to kneel together. And I mean kneeling like we could physically kneel beside one another, but spiritually kneeling beside one another where we're both submitted completely to the will of God. Let's just be real. That's not happening. Then I want to close with some questions. We see the text. It really it puts some stuff out there for us to think about. And here's why I want to be real. As I was preparing for this this week, um, a week ago, um, some of us here got to go to this thing over in Tyler and hear this panel of, of leaders speak. And, and what was incredible, there was this one particular couple in this panel, and um, she went like in incredible detail talking about how selfless and thoughtful and kind her husband was and talked about all these ways that he he would like clear the sidewalks for people and use a snowblower like early in the morning and he would and just listen to all these incredible things but none of the things that she mentioned had anything to do with her it was all about what he did outside the home she she didn't say one good thing about him in relationship to her and that wasn't the point of the conversation, but that was the point of the conversation for me. Because as a pastor, like, it, it's my job, but it's also who I am, the way that God made me, that I just love people. I love loving people. I love encouraging. I love hearing. I love building and finding ways to vault people, lift them up. I love it. It's crazy. I'm crazy about it. But it, I had to go to Aaron. I was like, hey you notice a lot of the cool stuff I get to do for other people. What would you say is a good thing that I do for you? And so, husbands, I would ask you, if we, if we were to just sit, do a little interrogation and put that crazy spotlight on your wife's face and say, I don't want to know what he does outside the home, all the good he does and how the, he cares for so many people. What does he do for you? What does he do for you showing you honor? How are you honored by him? Not, not all these heroic things he does in this, you know, at, the, at his work, in the community, in the marketplace. What does he do that makes a difference to you? Now, wives. If I were to ask your husband, what is it about him? What is it about your wife that, that makes her uniquely yours? What is it about her that she makes you feel special and significant? What is it that she does? Is it because she, she's like the first person to sign up for the mill train to care for somebody that just had a baby? Is it the fact that she signs up for, for all these ways to serve in the community? That's great. But what does she do significantly for you, specifically for you? What is it? Because here's the thing. There's a lot of amazing couples in this church. But most of the characteristics that are winsome about us happen outside the home. It's real life. I mean, straight up, I was joking earlier about the dating aspect and how these traits are before dating. But for some of us, we honestly thought and like pragmatically play it out as though the, the wedding day was the finish line. 
I got her, I got him. That's all I need to do. No, that's the jump. Like that's the starting line. That's where you get going. That's where you make a commitment to death do you part, which means that's, that's, we're going to that end. I want to read something that a friend of mine sent me back in July. I wept then. I wept earlier at the 930 when I read it. And I'm, I'm going to be strong this time. It's from this couple, Tim and Kathy. They wrote this book called The Meaning of Marriage. And this is what I hope that you would get to experience in your marriages. And this is what I hope that those who are single in this room, whether you're single because you're a widow or widower, because you've been divorced, or because you just haven't been married yet, that you would pray this for all the couples in our church because they're in the body of Christ with you. This couple says this. It says, within the Christian vision of, for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating. And to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. And I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always, I always knew. I always knew you could be like this. I got a glimpse of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the great things that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, through the gospel. Each spouse then should give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stay in, together, stay in together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. In this view of marriage, each person says to the other, I see all your flaws. I see all your perfections, all your weaknesses, all your dependencies. But underneath them all, I see the growing person God wants you to be. You want to help your spouse become the person God wants him or her to be. And this paragraph When two Christians who fully understand this stand before the minister all decked out in their wedding finery, which, by the way, is the whole reason I wanted to read this, to say that word in public. Not true. Decked out in their wedding finery, they realize they're not just playing dress up. What they're saying is that someday... They're going to be standing not before the minister, but before the Lord. And they will turn to each other without spot and blemish. And they hope to hear God say, 
well done, good and faithful servants. Over the years, you have lifted one another up to me. You have sacrificed for one another. You have held one another up with prayer and thanksgiving. You confronted each other. You were given to each other. You hugged and loved each other. And continued to push each other toward me. And he says, and now look at you. You're radiant. That's what marriage can be. And that's what I hope marriage is for you. It's not the person that's sitting beside you, broken and imperfect, and you're complaining in the nag. No, the person that you know they can be because Jesus loves them like he loves you. That's the one. And here's what we need. We need the whole body of Christ. As Grace Kids and our Joy Ministry and our GSM Ministry need our help in volunteering. They need our giving and praying and serving. They need it. Married couples in this church need all of us, single people. We need you praying for us. We need you reminding us of gospel truth. Married people... Our single brothers and sisters need you, leaning in, loving them, showing them value, that they are no less than or anything. We are part of the body, and together we are linking arms toward this end. And God is using the gift of marriage as one of his tools for our sanctification so that we can be presented as holy and blameless without spot or blemish. And we get to be part of that journey as a body of believers together. And so, if you're married in this room, I'm going to give you a moment, if you're with your spouse, to pray with them. And if you're single in this room, if you could just pray for the couple that's nearest you, or if you know of a couple somewhere else that needs to hear of this gospel truth, that you would pray for them. And that this would be a time that we understand that we are part of a body of believers, which means there are parts of this body that need each other to encourage, to stir one of their own, to love and good works. We need each other. So let's take a moment to pray. Father, I pray for the couples in this room. I pray for the brothers and sisters that are single. Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would help them see their value and worth in the body. And that none of this can happen without you. Lord, I pray that you would use today as a beginning for a transformation for the sake of your name. That you would help this body of people who love you and are loved by you, both married and single, to understand, Lord God, their value and worth. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, to kind of tie the knot, pun intended. The whole point of this is verse 9. 
chapter 2, so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your marriage is a testimony to a world that doesn't know the Lord of what God can do in taking two hard-headed, boneheaded, selfish people and making them one. That's a testimony. And so we get to be part of that. So that's why our marriages matter. The other thing, too, our church has been blessed to be able to be part of a ministry called Reengage. We get to do this. This is a blessing, okay, that God trusts us with this ministry. And it is in full swing right now, which means they've already started. There's already groups and all that stuff. But I'm just telling you, they have this, this open group. So that if you come on a Monday night at 6.30 here in the, the back building and you say, hey, I want, I want to learn about that. Uh, I want to at least kick the tires on reengage because me and my spouse, we could really benefit from this. Just having some conversations. They have an open group. You get to experience the, the big group session. You get to dialogue. Um, one of our elders, Steve and his wife, Molly, dynamic couple, been married like 37 years. They're phenomenal. They, they would, they'll sit with you and just hear your story and find out ways to encourage you and build you up. This is a way. And I'm just letting you know, you may be going through a hard time in your marriage, but you don't have to go through that hard time in your marriage alone. We're the body. As a church, I hope that even though, yeah, it was one of those orientations where some of the things didn't relate to you, and you didn't have to think about umbop much, but I hope by God's grace that you see your part and value in the body, and that what we do together we get to glorify God's name together. Church, we love you. We are so grateful that we get to serve alongside of you. Go in Jesus' name. Have a good week.